Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 89. Literary Alchemists. I'm Lauren Scribe-Harris. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned in to the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we dive into it, exploring what works and what doesn't, trying to transform the raw idea into literary Gold. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And so far, for, we're like 89 for, for 89, baby. Uh, we're, we're rapidly closing in on that 100th episode, and I, I can only assume something fabulous is going to happen at that point. But uh, for now, this is episode 89. I'm think maybe sure why not <laughs> I am let's joined, go with that let's go with that and i am joined by the charming lovely and oh so talented lauren scribe harris ma'am thank you so much the 20 minutes was fabulous this is going to exceed the levels of awesomeness that we achieved in that 20 minutes i i don't know how you can get better than guinea pig sounds but <laughs> i, I I know we will try, and I'm sure we will manage. Indeed, indeed, it's 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 a high bar. It's a high damned bar, but we're gonna yes. go for it. And let's <laughs> let's go ahead and dive into that. Let's bring our guest host back, dear friends, from a truly marvelous twenty minutes with well twenty ish minutes with of just seven days ago. Please welcome back to the comfy big chair here at the round table, Gail Carriger. Gail, it's delightful to have you back. It was fabulous to talk with you in the twenty minutes with, and I am literally rubbing my hands at this very moment in anticipation of workshopping a story with you, ma'am. Thank you so much for making the time. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm super excited about this. I think uh-huh. it's going to be fun. It is. It is. It always is. We don't know how. It's a mystery. Uh, <laughs> uh, but it happens. It happens every time. Before we dive into that, Gail, your 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 legacy of, of storytelling is is rich and, and delightful. And I know for a fact that you are so far from done uh, <laughs> as a storyteller. So, so I'm intrigued to ask, ma'am, what is coming up in the world of Gail Carey? Well, um, as we talked about on the 20 minutes-ish, uh, I, <laughs> I have a new uh, young adult book coming out in November on the 3rd, and it is the last book in my Finishing School series, and that series will be done at four books. So for those of you out there who don't like to read something until it's finished, you can now go read them all at once, back to back. Um, uh, So I'm pretty excited about that. And uh, for anybody who might be in the Bay Area, I am going to be at Doc's Comedy Club in San Francisco on October 28th. Oh, my God. With with Jackie Cation doing the Dork Forest podcast. And then she and Uh, uh. a cadre of stand-ups are going to do some stand-up after that. So you can get, like... All my favorite things are in one place. I happen to be a big fan of stand-up comedy. So it's stand-up comedy and a podcast, and I will be talking about my dorks. Um, <laughs> I sent her a very long list, so we'll see what she picks from that. Is it wrong of me to wish that, that you completed that sentence with, it's open mic and I'll be doing comedy uh, <laughs> up there? Are you gonna, is it open mic? Will you be doing comedy? You know how some people are terrified about writing a book? Like they just can't imagine writing a book and sending mm-hmm. it out into the world. That's how I feel about stand-up. <laughs> <I cannot. laughs> like 
That just terrifies me. I have no problem standing up in front of an enormous crowd of people and talking about something about which I know a lot, like mm, myself. But, <laughs> but the idea of standing up in front of people and telling jokes and making them laugh just petrifies me. And I think that's why I admire it so much. So Absolutely. luckily, no, it's just an interview. <laughs> but uh, but after that, I will be in the audience watching the stand up because I, I think cool. it's going to be. Wonderful. Well, and and the first book of the new series, The Custard Protocol, came out last March, and and That's right. the second book, Imprudence, is due out sometime in 2016, maybe. Let's just say I am really like I will be. It's Sunday, and I will be writing it this afternoon <laughs> because certain persons is a little late on the deadline. Actually. It's not my fault. I made my word count. I was supposed to be done on Friday, and I was done ostensibly by the Picto Tracker, but um, the book's not done. So the story is not finished. So this one's running a little long. Uh, knowing me, I'll freak out and knock it down hardcore in the <laughs> editing phase. I, I don't. Sure. I don't like to be over a hundred thousand words if I can help it. Mm-hmm. So um, yeah. So okay. and we're not talking. I mean, that book is going to be. Awesome. Like I was saying before, we're going into Africa outside of Egypt yeah. and, yeah, and so they're tracking exciting. the source of the Nile and it's like super fun and exciting. But it is, uh, it's killing me, you guys. It's killing me. <laughs> <laughs> Author found dead at her keyboard, yeah. writes the and it's, end. It's, <laughs> yeah, it's already delayed. So I'm just like, meh. And uh, one of the things I'm learning is that, uh, yeah, is that. Deadlines are not as big a deal as I thought they were because, yeah. yeah. You've earned some. You've earned some grace, I think, with, I, with the I rigorous like schedule have. that you've, you've held yourself. You've put to. in your dues. Absolutely. Yeah. So, 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 so that's uh, hopefully on the I can make it. Yeah. Okay. And and that's on the docket. Anything else coming up? Well, once that's done and in the bag, which I'm hoping, um, so I'm hoping it'll be done by the end of this month, October, uh, because frankly, I go on book tour and then. <laughs> Yeah. So it better be, at least a rough draft is going to be done. Okay. And then I'm hoping it'll be edited and off to print and press by the end of the year. And then it's kind of up to the publisher to when they decide to release it. Okay. So they're waiting on me. So it really is my fault. We don't have a release date for that book. <laughs> and I'm going to own it. No. But, uh, but I am out of contract after that. And I have elected to take a break for 2016 because I want to start writing some shorter stuff and I want to start doing some self-publishing of my own stuff Ooh. so um yes so you're gonna see some shorts in world I'm, I'm hoping mostly in world so you'll see some novellas and some short stories a lot of favorite side characters coming back and um getting their own gonna, stories getting their own little stories cool. and little and it's gonna be i think it's gonna be quite romance heavy i'm feeling quite romantic these days so <laughs> um yeah, so I have my fingers crossed happen. for my favorite. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> is going, oh, oh, let it be X, yeah. let it be Y. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's going to be, is it going to be super fun? I want to see what it's like to put my own book out and um, find my own cover art designer and all that sort of thing. That's so, marvelous. What, and, I'm and, aware and, it's going to be work. but <laughs> Yes, but you've been doing this for quite some time and you have a keen eye for the industry, so you know the work that's coming up. That's fabulous, Gail. I love yeah, that. Yeah, I think it'll be really, really fun. And the sort of model idea is that um, I get it all figured out and all the business end of things figured out as well in 2016. And then I'll be back on the wagon and doing um, hopefully kind of one book a year uh, 
for Orbit or for Little Brown or for whoever. And then um, a couple of things that are my own around that. Outstanding. What about conventions? I know you will be attending conventions. Oh, yes. Yes. I will be at World Fantasy, which is in Saratoga Springs in November. Uh, in fact, that's my launch weekend, and I'm I'm hiding out rather than going on tour. <laughs> I'm hiding out at World Fantasy instead. Uh, although I'm not actually officially there, I'm merely staying in the hotel and drinking at the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I have a Northshire Books in Saratoga Springs that um, has very graciously agreed to host a little tea party. So if you happen to be local, you can come down and say hi. Um, and it's going to be, it's all, this is all on my website. Yes. That. Um, and then I'm off to Boston. I'm doing a launch on at Porter square books in Boston. Boston's one of my favorite cities and I have a bunch of friends there. So I'm going and hanging out and doing an event. <laughs> and then of I'm going to go to church and then I'm going to go to Car- Charleston to do y'all fest, which you guys, if you are at all into <laughs> children's or young adult literature mm-hmm. and you're in anywhere near it, it's almost all of the events associated with it are free. Uh, you just have to get yourself to the Charleston, South Carolina downtown area <laughs> um, and find a program. And there's like major heavy hitters there. Um, Melissa Mar is going to be there and Patricia Bray and Brandon Sanderson. Aviar. Yeah, there are just some major, major authors in young adult lit that are going to be there. So come bring your kids. It's it, there'll be there's tons of signings. This, this be is called Y'all Fest. Y'all Fest. And it is a book festival, Good. which means that there'll be, I think there'll probably be like food tents set up and some bookstores and books and people giving away books. And then there's a bunch, a huge number of authors in town. And Lauren's going to be with me. Yay! Yay! <laughs> and we're going to be bumming about having a fabulous time. Yeah. So I've got a couple of panels there and I'm going to just be. There's a lot of little author events, so I'll be showing up at all those and stuff. So. Fabulous. And that's still in 2015, right? Yeah, that's just the end of this year. <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the second weekend of November. All right. uh, well, and, and all of this deliciousness is on your website, right? Yes. I have a handy little events tab on my website where everything is listed. And I am some point soon going to update with my panel information for y'all fest and everything. So. Excellent. But Excellent. It just, it has all the dates and everything. I was going to say this, we could go on probably for another half hour <laughs> with all the stuff you're going to be doing. <laughs> so friends do check out gailcarriger.com uh, uh, and check out her event listings and all the other deliciousness that you will find up there. And I'm on pretty much almost every social media platform. So, and I try to keep all the platforms informed so you can also follow me on your platform of choice whether that's uh, Twitter or or Instagram or Facebook and we'll have links to all of that in the liner notes very cool so Lauren uh, uh, since your last appearance as my as my wing angel for for an episode I have no doubt things have been evolving in your world Uh, sequels being completed and whatnot catch catch the listeners up on what's happening with you Yes, indeed. Um, I have completed the second installment in the Mill Road Academy Exorcist series, the first of which is called Exercising Aaron Wynn. The second one is called The Girl in Acid Park, and that will be out in December. Yes. Um, and uh, let's see, I've completed a uh, the rough draft of the first book in a fantasy series uh, that I brainstormed on the Roundtable podcast yes! some years back. Wow. So that is finished now uh, and going into heavy edits as soon as I'm done with the rough draft of my current YA fantasy that I'm hoping to complete before Y'all Fest. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have five weeks to write like 50,000 words. So we'll see what happens. 
You can do it. You can I do, can do it. it. It's like NaNoWriMo. Um, but I'm, I'm currently also in school. Um, I'm, I've gone back to school to study echocardiography, which is a ultrasounds on the heart. So that is eating up a lot of my time. Mm. Um, but I am in, at Starbucks in the mornings before my labs, furiously typing away. Um, so, and it's fall break for me right now. So yeah, I have no excuses. I'm going to be hitting the pages hard and I, I think I can do it. So you make we, that happen, lady. You we'll make see. that happen. And, and as far as things coming out, that's about it. That and, um, some narration for Starla Hutchton. Ooh, yes. Oh, right. For her, uh, flipped fairy tale series. Yes. Shadows on snow. Um, I am almost done with that. And so that will be out at some point in the hopefully near future. Are you just, are you narrating it, Lauren, or is it full cast? It's not full cast. I'm narrating, um, doing all the stuff. And, uh, Brian Lincoln, another one of our friends from, um, Smokey Writers and audio editor extraordinaire is doing the editing. Outstanding. Very cool. That's going to be a, that's going to be a piece to watch for. Very, very cool. Awesome. And, and where can people go online, Lauren, to, to stay abreast of all the fabulous things and these wonderful creations that you're building and putting out there? Well, um, I do have a Facebook fan page, which is uh, Lauren B. Harris, fantasy author. I also have a website, uh, which is laurenbharris.com. Excellent. I will make sure links to all of that and and your Twitter profile and all yeah, of that. Yeah, I have Twitter and Twitter and, and Instagram. Insta- my Instagram is largely just selfies and pictures of my cat. Um, <laughs> but I occasionally will put up writerly things on there as well. Very good. good. At least a nod to the writerly pursuits yes. amid the cat well, I mean, photos. I mean, selfies and cat, like cat photos. That's that's. I feel like that's a writerly pursuit. <laughs> sure. Let's go with that. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Well, I will make sure all of that gets into the liner notes as well. That's awesome. All right. Well, now here's the next stage. And, and here's what I'd like to do right now. I'd like to first pause briefly and give some podcast airtime to a to a fabulous ebook or another podcast a kickstarter who knows there's so much going on out there uh but when we come back lauren gail i would love to workshop a story with you what do you say yes Yeah, absolutely. And that's that's the promise. That's the plan. So, friends, don't you go anywhere. We'll be right back. Do you like listening to audio science fiction? Are you a fan of writers reading their work? My name is Mike Luoma. By day, I play tunes on the radio. The rest of the time, I'm creating science fiction and comic books. And I bring my two worlds together each week with my glow-in-the-dark radio podcast, where I read you my stuff. You hear free science fiction audio adaptations every week. And I give away the audio versions after I've podcast them, too. Free science fiction audiobooks on iTunes and at audiobooks.com. I hope you'll check out my Glow in the Dark Radio podcast or any of my free science fiction audiobooks at glowinthedarkradio.com. I'm Mike Luoma. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, dear friends, and now we get down to the reason why you're here and the reason why we're here, the Story Workshop, the Brainstorm Extraordinaire. And that does not happen, dear friends, without a courageous guest writer, a creative and courageous guest writer stepping up boldly and setting the table for our brainstorming feast. And dear friends, our guest writer for this episode was born and raised in Kansas City, Missouri, which is the location of of this year's Worldcon, which is 
is kind of coincidental. Interesting. And while he's not an actor, he plays one in the courtroom as a civil attorney, hammering out the daily nine-to-five in pursuit of truth, justice, the American way, and the billable hour. <laughs> but by <laughs> night, he mends his soul as a fledgling web developer, amateur photographer, loving Dachshund owner, and persistent, though not always consistent, new author. And though he cherishes his Sunday football and playoff baseball, he has sacrificed them willingly, nay, gladly, to take the writer's chair here at the Roundtable. So, dear friends, please welcome our guest writer for this episode of the Roundtable, Rick Malone. Rick, dude, I don't care how many times you've done this, stepping up and offering up your baby for scrutiny and discussion is never an easy thing. So hats off to you. Thank you so much, sir. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you guys so much for, for being here today. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm curious, amateur photographer, do you have a, do you have a, a, a site where you, you gather your, your photographic and digital creations? Well, I, it's funny you say so, because I've kind of merged that with my fledgling web development <laughs> and ah, recently very nice. published my, yeah, my personal site. It's, it's sharpdressedcode.com. Does, is, so ZZ, is ZZ Top yeah. involved in some way? <laughs> not quite, but it definitely was, was the play on words and also the play on the, the language I write in is C Sharp. Outstanding. So. Sharpdressedcode.com. And now you'll see what I consider my better photos right there. Outstanding, friends. Check that bad boy out. This That's intriguing. Uh, don't do it now, though, because we've got a story <laughs> workshop to get into. <laughs> All right, Rick, you know how this how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. Give us the, the title, the target audience. Give us a, a, a tagline or a hook line. Uh, introduce us to the themes of the story, the world, uh, the characters. And then give us just some basic tent poles of the story. And, and we will be off to the races in a frothing brainstorm. I'm going to stop talking. <laughs> the mic is all yours, sir. All right. This is a YA fantasy adventure. The working title is Hallenport Canyon. Um, adolescent twins are implicated in inciting the end of times by a zealous priest seeking to raise a deity-led army to overthrow the current political order. I'm struggling with a the theme, but it's right now, everybody has a personal sense of justice and redemption, but what does either mean if fulfilling yours must suppress or oppress another's? The world. It's a secondary world in which magic works. The nation of Hallenport sits between the omnipresent dangers of the canyon, which may be the pit of hell on earth, and Ebonwood Forest, equally as dangerous to humans if not controlled by the resident elves, with whom Hallenport keeps diplomatic relations. Hallenport Palace actively protects its peoples from the canyon. In this world, works of great art can be imbued with a live, sentient spirit. The world also contains a rare, extremely valuable, and magical mineral called Edda Stone. Polish one into a crystal ball and it might help you see into the past and future. A personal talisman might make you age more slowly. It's mostly illegal to possess, especially in large quantities. One of the world's most precious artifacts is the arch, made of Edistone and a tool of the monarchy. Put two people or objects between it and it will reveal their relative fates. Put your coffee cup on the other side, say, and you might see a vision of yourself finishing the last sip. Our protagonists... A primary protagonist is Beckett Kent, a teenage girl, particularly empathetic. She can communicate emotionally with animals. It's a rare trait documented once in a generation in this world. She does not understand routine social cues. 
She's terrified of most organized social gatherings, although she doesn't mind getting lost in a crowd. More than anything, she wants to find a situation where she feels appreciated for exactly who she is. By the end of the story, she'll appreciate that she's unique, but not alone in the world. Alex Kent is Beckett Kent's timid twin brother. He's very intuitive, yet insecure of his abilities and often caves to peer pressure. He's terribly afraid of failure and disappointing others. He wants to find his purpose in the world. By the end of the story, he'll have decided that he alone is responsible for defining his own purpose. Joseph Jacks is a tenacious only child with a sense of entitlement. When he doesn't get his way, he's quick to suspect sabotage. He's most afraid of losing his friends and family, although I don't believe he's self-aware of this fear yet. More than anything, he wants siblings, and Alex and Beckett are two of his only friends. By the end of the story, he'll better understand when and how to sacrifice his own needs for others. Beckett and Alex's mom, Eden Kent, is Hallenport's primary diplomat to the elves. They respect her, and the Hallenport monarchy values her diplomatic success with them. Joseph's parents are General Victor Jacks, head of the Hallenport Guard, and Lenora Jacks, social friend to the Queen and an occasional ambassador. They consider Beckett and Alex part of their own family. The antagonist is the Raj Namali. He's a zealous high priest, counselor to the monarchy, and shrewd politician. He vocally preaches that the monarchy should use Edistone and other dangerous magical elements to animate the warrior god sculptures, who will then lead a great army to defeat all that is evil in the canyon. In addition to his political clout, he's very calculating, though overconfident. He's fiercely protective of his social standing, overcompensating for a fear of inadequacy. More than anything, he wants to feel like the most important person in the room. By the end of the story, he's a paranoid mess, unusually risk-prone, and on the verge of a mental breakdown. <laughs> the Rajnamali also has a bit of a counterpart in this story named Olivero. Olivero is a grand wizard and sage and advisor to the monarchy. He often counters any advice the Raj gives the monarchy. And for some reason, most people in this world just love Olivero. The story. The kids meet a merchant, Janus, who has amongst his cargo a very rare breed of tiger, which probably will be slaughtered for profit. Beckett adopts the tiger's feelings of despair and wants to save it. Though sympathetic, Janus declines until he sees Beckett's Edistone earrings. He offers to trade the tiger for a large amount of Edistone. Joseph thinks he can find them some. They're on their journey and outside of the city when they're attacked by monsters from the canyon, one of which tackles and injures Beckett. Joseph saves her life while Alex merely stands by petrified. They move on and easily find an oversized chunk of Edistone just off path. They don't know this, but the stone was dropped by the Rajnamali's minions while transporting it from his illegal mining operations. The kids deliver the stone to Janus, who in his excitement alerts the local guards who arrest him on the spot. Ashamed, the kids seek Eden Kent's advice, who admonishes that they must present testimony at Janus's hearing, lest he be punished on their account. At court, everyone is present. The kids testify, but now Janus is convicted of possessing the stone, and the kids are implicated as the ones who stole it from somewhere. With their children facing detention, Eden and Joseph's parents demand use of the arch. Justifiably paranoid, the Raj questions its reliability. Olivero counsels otherwise, and the king mesmerized by its power anyway, orders it be utilized. Olivero places the kids to one side of it, opposite view of the king and the queen. It's uncovered before the stone is brought near and gives the king and Olivero a shocking revelation. Only they see it. In his fright, Olivero knocks Alex through the arch, showing Alex that Beckett eventually kills him. Beckett doesn't see this, as she's collapsed from her previous injuries. The Raj attends to her and claims that the, only the elves have the necessary antidote for her. 
With the king functionally disabled, the queen grants Eden's plea to visit the elves with a security detail. Alex won't be left behind, blaming himself for the injury and hoping to do something so noble for Beckett that she'll never want to kill him. They're attacked shortly into the forest and Eden is injured. The commander of the security detail orders the mission aborted when Alex steals a horse to continue. He's not just going to let his sister die. In the woods, he encounters a garden with an Edistone angel statue that comes to life and sends him visions of the Raj already illegally sculpting his warrior gods. Alex faints, eventually revived by the elves who recognize him as Eden's son. They give him the medicine for Beckett and escort him to the edge of the wood. He delivers the meds, saves Beckett, and then they learn that Eden has died from her attack. Moreover, Olivero has been banished to the canyon upon the king's vision in the arch that Olivero has killed him someday. Feeling responsible for everything, Beckett and Joseph decide to go into the canyon to find or rescue Olivero. Alex refuses, wanting to resolve his own visions of the Rajnamali that he saw in the woods. And this is where the narrative splits. I don't really have too many details of what happens from here until the very end, but ultimately, Alex verifies his visions of the Raj and tells the queen. She reveals her own vision that she saw in the arch, that she saw an older version of herself comforting an older version of Olivero. And this is something she can't resolve with whatever the king saw. She orders General Jax to retrieve everyone from the canyon. At the very end, everyone is found and brought to court where the arch will spontaneously combust, throwing fire at the Raj. It'll be deflected by Olivero and inadvertently redirected to the king. The king lunges at Olivero, thinking that this validates his own vision. Beckett tries to save Olivero, but the king throws her off. And while it appears he's about to stab her, Olivero sees no choice but to protect the innocent, and so he smites the king with such force as to actually kill him. The commotion will eventually calm, the queen will call everything to order, and she will divvy justice that will make, of course, every last reader happy. (laughs) (laughs) That's just the assumption. Absolutely. Good. Excellent. Well done, sir. Well done. Good pitch. So before we dive into this, what what are you hoping to get out of the next 45 minutes or so of, of brainstorming? Yeah, I just... I've got a fairly thick skin. I want need the objectivity. <laughs> Tear this thing down. This is this is not Jenga. This is bowling. <laughs> bowling Tear it down. I'll build it back up. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Well, you know, nobody nobody here is wielding a sledgehammer, uh, <laughs> but I, I think you've come to the right place. There's there's going to be some cool. there's going to be some opportunities for exactly that going on here. But before we do that, we need to cover our ass. Lauren, would you be so kind? Absolutely. Rick, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Gail might be complete bullshit. This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? Absolutely. Awesome. Our asses are covered. We're free! Let the brainstorming begin. And we begin customarily by taking a quick once around the table. And this is just an opportunity to, to, to offer first impressions and ask any questions of clarification that you feel need to be done to, to solidify your understanding of the story as, as Rick presented it. And we always start with our guest host. So, Gail Carragher, start us off. What were your first impressions of Rick's story pitch? And, and what questions do you have of clarification? Okay, I oh I, I don't want I, I don't like going first. Um, 
Well, as um, the guest host, you can see, I, I, I can I can actually turn it over to Lauren and and yes, let you collect your thoughts. Lauren has to go first. Lauren, that's my that's my no. guest host I'm decree. Actually, I'm, I'm cool with going first. Rocket baby, cool go for it. it. Okay, so um, my first impression was that it sounded like um, a a pretty solid uh, set of characters that you had. You know who they are. You know what they want. You know their their trajectory and what you want them to have achieved by the end of the story. And I I think that's a really good starting point to have with character mm-hmm. and especially important in something like YA. And um, in YA, you know, a lot of times you start with a character searching for their place in the world and um, and you have hit on that perfectly with those character trajectories. A question that I did have was um, about the, the Rajnamali's uh, purported religious war. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm still kind of not sure what the war is against. Mm, yeah. Like what, where is, um, he wants to bring up or animate these war God idols. Yeah. Against what? So that's kind of a good question. And okay. I kind of want to explore the ambiguity in that. He, he definitely thinks that sort of like the devil incarnate is in the Canyon and okay. there might be sort of another sort of like definitely subculture or, maybe main culture that says there's a lot of bad, evil things in the canyon, but the devil's not there. Okay. So but he definitely thinks that he's raising an army to, to he, defeat is, all evil. Is he like a political advisor to the king and queen? How does he exist in the current political, political structure? Yeah. So he's supposed to be the like leader of his, as I had originally sort of thought the story out, like order of, of monks or priests. Okay. That is a serious religion. He's like a Pope. I mean, for lack okay. of a better word, he's, he's taken seriously when he, when he's he the religious advisor. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, and the, the, well, I, I want to know more about the, the dominant religion and the, gods and the characters relationships with the gods and stuff like that but i think that can be relegated to a little bit later in the discussion actually um, I'm, I'm gonna say I, I rick can you give us just a real quick you know who is who is raj the priest of what 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 that god is okay that's you guys might we might want to workshop that oh, that's, very <laughs> that's good. probably the weakest so, part of my story to be honest i just to assume that there's sort of a a thought um there's a religion that worships idol gods and the pantheistic kind of pantheistic deities. Okay. I have an idea for this. I know we're like jumping right into workshop really <laughs> quickly, but um, my thought would be, so he, Raj, the bad guy is trying to collect the Edda stones, correct? Or he wants to collect enough to animate these God statues. Yeah. What if he's running a smear campaign <laughs> against the Edda stones surfacely? So what if his, religious cult is like, like a purge or a purist cult Ooh. where they're ostensibly trying to get rid of them. And so they're collecting them in the guise of like, nobody should have them because they're evil or they invoke demons. And then of course, in reality, he's collecting them all for his own personal use. That's now, awesome. That's, that is awesome. Um, Cause that, that would be a sort of, you know, like, yeah. A nice contrast and, and a that great reveal. Allow- yeah. That would actually allow him a uh, a soapbox to stand on against using the arch 
yes. um, during yes. the trial. So Thank he wouldn't exactly. want to see the arch because, hey, that's magic. And, and you know, that's the, the, that's Edistone. Uh, you can't do that's that. The realm of, that's the realm of the gods. That's the, the gods prerogative to have that kind of power. not Or human. the devils. Yes. Exactly. Or the devils. Yeah. And he, yeah. Uh, and he like, can, he can play on the fear of uh, people who don't have any magical ability or, you know, who are just like scared of this un- unknown, um, these sprouting up of these, these kids with abilities or whatever. Yeah. And, you, and here you have two main characters, Beckett and Alex, who both have power and, you know, who show up in the very beginning with, uh, with you know, Beckett has those Edistone earrings. So, you know, you've got that and you've got the, the um, Janus who wants all the Edistones. And so that's a good, I, I agree. I think, I think good good. And the Raj can take yeah. a stand at the, at the trial against mm-hmm. the, you know, sure, sure. The, and and the that evil makes it more inherent. Evil. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Very cool. Uh, what else, uh, Lauren, what other questions did you have? Um, well, the, the big question that I had was why you chose spontaneous combustion for the arch at the end, rather than it being, uh, the result of a of the care of the main character's agency, yeah. um, and whether or not you would be up for us changing that up. Yes, I'm up for you changing anything <laughs> and everything. <laughs> um, the reason I sort of chose spontaneous combustion was I kind of want the arch to be somewhat of a again like an unknown commodity farce. Like, what does this thing really? Do? I told you in the pitch, you know, it does this, but. Not everybody's so sure that's what it does. It might be. We can so basically, it, or maybe it actually that. sort of has its own mind, a mind of its own. You know, like, hey, I'll show you guys to mm-hmm. use me. But anyway, and <laughs> I like that, but I'm not sure I like that as the climax because I feel like for the main characters, especially in a YA, they really need to have a very strong hand in the climactic action and be the instigators of the of the big change. Yeah. I I wonder if we could bring because I felt like at, at a certain point Joseph doesn't seem to have as much of a plot yeah. action as the twins do. Mm. So I wonder if somehow he can have a hand in sort of sneaking about and demolishing the arch or or doing something that causes it to fracture or combust. Or well, something. and we know that Beckett has those Edistone earrings, um, and I wonder if there's a way to show throughout the if they find some way to interrupt or incite some kind of combustible uh property within the Edistones throughout the series and they figure that out and are able to trigger that sure. at the end there. Or, that or, might be Or their earrings have something to do with the arch and maybe they activate an alternative power or something along those lines. But something like they figure it out or they are in the process of figuring out. And right. I don't know, uh, and Joseph or, or uh, Beckett or Alex, one of them realizes it in the climax and manages to get everyone else to be on board and trigger it. Sure. You can also have a secondary plot twist involved in that, which is if the Edistone is also inherently weaponizable and dangerous, then there's a reason for controlling it and forbidding it and yes. gathering it in. <laughs> yes, yes. Which is absolutely. exactly what the bad guy wanted to do, right? And so you, you yeah. give your heroes and your queen a crux of having to deal with, oh yeah, the you know, anyway, that's just yeah, me being like tricksy. Because yeah. Yeah, <laughs> may, maybe he's not even in it for the, for the war. Maybe he's in it to... Um, to make it a um, a religious society with himself as the head. 
Sure. And maybe maybe the arch is the key to activating the statues in Ooh. some way. And then we can tie that into the Raj's agenda and mm. and you know the the climax could then because you know there's this there's there's a gun on the mantle. There's these these statues that could come to life and they never do. And they've got to. You you've got yeah, the gun on the mantle yeah. in act one. We have to have the gun go off in act three. So one of them wheeled through the arch and then animated. Yes, yes, and and it's uncontrollable because the arch is an agency of the devil. And the uh, yeah. (laughs) Anyway, yes, we can talk about that during the pitch. But yes, awesome. This is good stuff. What else? I also I wanted to know about the relationship of the elves with the religion of the humans with the society of the humans mm-hmm. what they think about all this if they're going to do anything else besides chuck medicine at them <laughs> good question right, right now no yeah it's right now sort of like <laughs> okay. the elves are in the forest the forest is really dangerous they can stay there and humans almost really can't penetrate the forest unless mm-hmm. the elves help them out and it's like look you guys got your own problems over there nothing really bothers us in here we've just sort of agreed to live our lives leave us alone and we'll leave you alone and for okay. now yeah. it's just Let's put a pin in that. We'll come. We'll definitely come back to that. Yeah, I will say that one of my notes is "Why elves?" With yes. question mark. <laughs> yes, mine too. I'm, yes, I'm, I'm almost tempted to say you don't. I mean, you don't necessarily need to have an elvish element unless mm-hmm. you want. I mean, the the act of putting elves into a story invariably invokes sort of quest and Tolkien and stuff like that. Like oh, whether yeah. you want to or not, then that's. And you can do that intentionally, or you can just create uh, your own counterculture. Yes. Um, perhaps a, a forest culture that has that shares this ability to have sort of mod- modest animal communication or something. And so mm-hmm. when Beckett gets into touch with them medically, she also can perhaps get some education in her own ability, or like it doesn't. I don't know. It, you, you might want that. You might want the sort of Tolkien aura. Um, but I would I would suggest considering perhaps counterculture or, or yeah. alternate, um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe a, um, a democratic society or a, a republic of some kind or something that, that is a political or religious counterculture rather than necessarily a different species. Well, and Lauren's yeah. point is well taken. I mean, the elves are effectively disconnected and disassociated from not only Hallimport, but the story as well. Yeah. And and just as you were talking, Gail, it occurred to me, what if there was, in, in Hallimport's past, a, a segment of society that, that splintered off, that, that you know advocated, we must take out the forest and we must take out the hell pit. And everybody in Hallimport said, no, 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 don't do that. And they went out and... You know, it, they didn't succeed, but they managed to bring about a, a time of peace and were so pissed that no one would back them up because they went out alone that they retreated to the forest and, and you know, said, screw you, we're, we're going to go off and do our own thing. So you've got this heritage and history and, and bad blood that, that can make it a more intimate, tied in piece of the story or something like that. And they could be a counter either for uh, a counterexample of like a different political system or they could be a counterexample of a different religious movement for yeah. either the king and queen or the Raj or both. Um, like you can have them practice an alternate religion as an example on how they interrelate to the Eddastone as an example of a of a different approach. Ooh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Yeah. yeah and-, and they may be they may be the key to finding out whatever it is. Um, if you decide to go with the the kids being able to find that or use that ability to 
spontaneously combust the, or not spontaneously, but to uh, combust the the Edistone Arch, that, that may be something that they can learn or that, that Alex can learn because he's looking for his purpose in the world. Yeah. So. Well, and that's perfect because there's that whole scene where Alex goes into the forest and wakes up and the elves mm-hmm. all like him and here's the cure and go home. <laughs> Why? Uh, and, and now, you know, we can, and I hate to invoke the you are the chosen one of destiny card, uh, uh, but, but maybe, you know, this bloodline has, maybe they're tied somehow to this, this counterculture and, you know, they, they know that he's there and they know his sister has the stones and that's why they're helping him because this can bring about, you know, a new age of some kind. I don't know, but it, it ties. Or Alex. I mean, even if they just re- uh, like revere people with the gift. Sure. Yeah. Or, and it's, or you can do a sort of uh, banal twist on it. Like I'm always drawn to the idea that, for example, that um, China had fireworks forever and ever and ever. And, mm-hmm. and it took them a very long time to figure out that gunpowder was also a weapon. <laughs> so like you can do that kind of thing where they, they use the Edistone in its weaponized form, just like automatically in a different way. That's part of they their have animated custodians or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they have this really banal execution of this concept. The ancestors. <laughs> I see Mulan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, and God, can you imagine? You know, if if the Edistone does have time control capabilities, can you imagine a weaponized Edistone where a warrior can like phase out of time and then you know, boom, 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 five hits immediately and then step back out again that would be badass and, and, and they just use it for their furniture so there's always exactly. a chair when he <laughs> it's lost uh, this, is, this, yeah. is, this is Gail's comedy brain activating it's <laughs> great I love it I love it but, but when you have YA a lot of times the comedy uh, inherent in certain situations really helps to uh, to keep readers interested while you're dropping exposition. So yeah, yeah, uh, I would urge you to consider uh, Joseph because I keep coming back to that character because I feel like he doesn't seem as integral as the other two. Um, to give him something like a very comedic voice or a jokester attitude or some sort of levity component. Right. I mean, I kind of left it out of the pitch. Uh, the original one I had Joseph is sort of like this. He's, he fancies himself an alchemist and he likes to collect like <laughs> ingredients and stuff, but he doesn't know what the heck he's doing. And he was, he definitely is in my mind, at least supposed to be sort of some add levity to the story. Like he's yeah. definitely kind of a smart aleck kind of agent, kind of <laughs> yeah. goading yeah. twins to do stuff they don't necessarily want to do. Accidentally changes <laughs> his <laughs> hair purple. <laughs> it starts a trend. Yeah. Everybody wants their hair purple now in town. Yes. He becomes a fashion designer. Absolutely. All of that. Well, and you state that you, you said that you wanted by the end for um, him to learn when and how to sacrifice his own desires for others. Um, so maybe there's something in there that he can learn. Um, so, I mean, that's got to get them in trouble at some point, first mm-hmm. of all. And then he's got to figure out some way for that to work into the climactic action. So what does he sacrifice and what, yeah. or what could he learn to sacrifice um, by the end of the book to work into that whole Edistone religion, blah, blah, blah. So. Yeah. Well, and I can see, you know, I can see a lot of, I'm sorry, Lauren, do you have any other questions at this point? No. Okay. Gail, do you want to field a round of questions and give some first impressions or, or are we just, have we just abandoned that pretense? I feel like we're just pretense? sort of challenged. I think we're just sort of charging for we it, are. frankly. We are. Yeah. Let me, let me just throw out a she couple of She just doesn't want to go. <laughs> no, no, well, well, my, 
it's more that like you you guys is talking about it make me think makes yeah. me think better than I can on my own at, at this cool. point. Cool, we will um, adapt but the structure. I mean, like for example, if like if we establish that Joseph wants more than anything this alchemy component, or if he 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 really perhaps he has some small ability with the edit stones, and what he's required at the end is to sacrifice that. Um, so maybe. Uh, uh, a ma- innate magical ability is is not necessarily permanent; that it can be sort of sucked out of people, or an innate affinity for the endostones can be um, burnt out of. Uh, a, a, yeah. I don't know how your magical system works, but or, or even and perhaps he has to use that, yeah, or yeah. offered up, yeah, mm-hmm. and that that's maybe sort of that's sacrificial what causes concept. To, maybe that's what causes it to combust: is that if it yes. overloads with that magical ability, it gives it all into it. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and that has we, a, a religious side, you know, component of this sort of a concept of sacrifice. Yeah, as well, and and if the arch is the thing that animates the statue, and the statue is the big threat at the end, then Joseph's sacrifice is profound, and yeah. and and resolves at least that story thread. So I I I do have one question, which is one of the the future predictions is that Beckett will kill Alex. Yeah. Right? Now. Yeah. But she doesn't kill him, so it doesn't uh, come through. Maybe not ever, or maybe not this book. Oh, okay. So that that was another question. Is this is this is this the first book in a series, or is this intended to be a standalone? Well, yeah, I want to publish one. Okay. <laughs> and then we'll write, see. So I want to write one. A standalone but yeah, I mean, series I potential. A standalone. Are, so so yeah. So we want as many threads resolved as possible. Yeah. I also kind of wanted to. I mean, an original idea I had wanted to explore with this was. Is there really such thing as fate? Like, so yeah. that showed Alex Beckett killing him. Can you change it? Like, well, does that just mean what's going to happen as of now? Was it just something that he is really worried about happening in the future? Yeah. Or is that really, really the actual fate? And, and that's at the end, I, and at the end of this book, if you have eliminated the arch, he can't double check it. And correct. if you have had all of the other fates come true, then he mm-hmm. like with the with the. Um, advisor killing the king and all that, mm-hmm. then um, he is going to be uh, as a character in the next book, should you write it, assuming that there is no way to change it and that it's sort of inevitable because he's witnessed this all, like he can't he can't double check with the arch and he's seen the previous predictions come true. Yeah. So that would be a good place to leave a character in, especially if you, you, leave, you leave one character still thinking that he's going to be killed by his own sister you leave your other character burnt out and purged of his and of his magical ability and his hopes and dreams you know like you leave all of your characters in a pretty dark place <laughs> and, and then people gotta read the next book just to get you gotta back. read the next book yeah <laughs> well and that raises you better uh, have Beckett, Be- Beckett end up on a high note though because you can't have too much <laughs> she needs to be appreciated but <laughs> Well, I that, feel like maybe that can happen with the alternative culture in there. Maybe she can actually kind of defect from from uh, the from her main city to that culture to learn more, especially if they are more in line with the sorts of things that she feels um, drawn to. Hmm. And if the if the dominant culture where she lives doesn't really suit her. Um, then that might be a way to to, or she might become the next ambassador to them. To well, maybe re- like maybe the reason maybe the reason that counterculture is so good at uh, uh, controlling the the threat inherent in the forest is because they have Beckett's power to communicate right. with the creatures. Yeah, their their dad. Do we know anything about their dad? No, I don't know anything about his dad. <laughs> their yeah. dad. 
her dad. Okay, so um, so I mean, he could potentially be from there, which might also explain why they like Alex. Um, but that just actually reminded me of another question I had. Um, in the very beginning, there's a tiger. What happens to the tiger? Do we keep the tiger? Can we keep the tiger? Can it be like the animal <laughs> companion sidekick? Martin is worried about the tiger. I am <laughs> so worried about this tiger. The, t- the tiger save, that's kind of what the queen is going to do. She's going to be like, yo, she's going to buy the tiger outright and, and keep yeah, it Yeah, but safe. the tiger appears and this is this cool, awesome tiger and then it's gone. But you introduce a tiger, man. <laughs> you can't introduce a tiger and then take it away. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that, that's just how I I have feelings about the tiger. And well, it's another I mean, one of those. Ride the tiger. It's one of those guys. <laughs> there we go, and we're all burst out into song. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, and that's, that's another example of a, of, a, of a gun on the mantle, you know. And that that tiger is very cool. I mean, tiger. Obviously, Lauren is fixated on this tiger, and I think a lot of your readers will be too. So, well, you have a girl with animal empathy, and she she gets a tiger in the first scene well yeah and and you, so, know, she, you had mentioned she has like a dog well get rid of the dog make it the tiger and and make it you know tiger, yeah. in the in the when 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 janus is is arrested you know uh, uh maybe joseph uses his alchemical abilities and busts the lock and and she takes the tiger with her and now the tiger is hanging out with her and, and she's developing a bond with that which is also kind of a cool hook into and maybe her. that way instead of it being joseph that saves her from the wild beast thing when alex freezes up maybe it's the tiger there you go Ooh. Yeah. Fire to the rescue. <laughs> and then like the ti- the tiger, because I mean, she can, the tiger senses her fear. She projects her fear at the tiger and the tiger is like, oh no, you didn't. And then attacks the beast <laughs> thing. Uh, yeah. And there's a style moment right there. Yeah. I, I, so, yeah. The tiger now has a personality. You're welcome. <laughs> well, and I want to, you know, another, uh, th- one of, one of the themes that I'm seeing in this, in this general arc, uh, Rick, is there's a lot of focus that's placed elsewhere, uh, uh, in in the context of the story, for example, the I love the irony at the end of the king and Oliver Olivero, and and you know the king forces Olivero to kill him because of the king's misconception. That's wonderful irony, but it's got nothing to do with the kids. Yeah, it's got nothing to do with your POV characters. And if we could take that delicious irony and and put it squarely into our primary POV characters, I, I think. That would serve us very nicely. The other thing that that I noticed, and, and another one of those gun on the mantle things, is if, uh, and I love the discussion we had about about Alex's vision of his sister killing him, um, uh, but we need to address that. Uh, I, I think, and and Gail Lauren, correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like uh, uh, seeing that, you know, yes, it can still be dangling at the end, but at some point between seeing it and the end of the story, there needs to be a confrontation. Yes. There needs to be a moment. And and I could see He has to tell her. Yeah. And and maybe saw, yeah. maybe Alex, one of his character qualities is he's struggling under the shadow of his sister who's fabulous and awesome and and he's feeling a little left out and, and that's turning into seeds of, you know, potential bitterness or distance from the sister. And this could be the the, the, the spark that brings that to the fore. Also, the separation, if she does end up, you know, going away, would make mm-hmm. more mm-hmm. sense because he would also want to physically put distance between them to save himself in well, a way. And that could be the wonderful resolution at the end because he's the only one that know. He goes into the forest. He knows things about these people. He probably recognizes, God, they're a lot like my sister Beckett. She'd probably like it here. But he's pissed at her and he's not going to tell her about it until they resolve these issues between them and then he realizes he must tell her because it's up to her and it's part of her destiny even though he may not know his own. 
So that's just a nice a nice resolution there, and and another a nice stepping stone for for a potential sequel. So yeah, love it. So <laughs> what all I I have I have another. I'm a little hesitant to suggest it, but I'm gonna go ahead and do it anyway. Which Dirt. is if I were you, I would consider gender swapping Joseph. Um, mostly because the goofy male friend has uh, <laughs> with two dudes and a girl in a young adult series is a little Overdone. occupied. Occupied, good word. <laughs> um, so yeah, if Joseph were a female character or um, I don't know, transgender, I don't know anything. You, you just uh, something else. Um, you you might consider it just because uh, and and keep some of the, the same prototypes the sort of goofy humorous sidekick type uh, you know mm-hmm. is, is fine but um just but there was automatically know. an assumption of eventual romantic connection between him and Beckett yes that oh, I had to Alex we can transfer yeah. that to yeah, Alex you can transfer it can be, the affection or or not <laughs> or, or you not. can keep or you can keep the girls affectionate with each other yeah absolutely There's nothing yes. wrong with that Yes, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Well, and that, that raises a point, and I just want to, we don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I'm, this the story that I'm hearing feels more middle grade than yeah. YA. And, I thought the same thing. Y- yeah. And, and you know, YA has a, usually has a little more, well, first of all, there's more romance. Romance tends to feature prominently, and I'm not trying to cubbyhole or or force anything into the story at all or say that YA must have romance but that tends to be a common theme and there's also uh, uh, the the finding of your place tends to take a much stronger role and in this story it's it's almost reactionary Uh, uh, you know things happen to the kids and yes, there is agency when Alex, you know, steals the horse and yada yada, and they they take ownership of their participation, the, the jailing of Janus, and they step up and say, "Hey, we we gave him the the Edistone. But mm-hmm. there's no Beckett doesn't want anything tangible and concrete, or she isn't doing anything tangible, concrete. Neither is Alex. Neither is Joseph. Does that? Does anybody else get that vibe? When I first read the pitch, I thought it sounded more like a middle grade. It reminded me a little bit of the um, of uh, Shannon Messenger and and uh, the Percy Jackson books and yeah. just that kind of feel, that kind of um, in, in a good way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That yeah. that is the sort of audience this would appeal to. Like a, I wrote, a, I wrote never ending story down. Yes, <laughs> well, like, yes <laughs> absolutely. Or or Thrones and Bones, Lou Anders, which, uh, middle which, grade. Which yeah. let's be clear, there's 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 nothing wrong with middle grade. Hell like, no. Frankly, it's it's a if you're if you're in the long haul considering the market share, um, mm-hmm. publishing houses are always desperate for good middle grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not, it just requires that as you write, you write with a specific style of, of you know you you just keep your language use. Um, modest and you have to write tight it has to be shorter than than which is hard for an author but uh it's, it's sometimes not a bad uh, skill set to develop yeah um, yeah what do you yeah. think rick are you but are you i would urge writing it without thinking too hard about that about yeah. whether it's going to be wire or mid-grade or adult like i just think uh I think right, you should let thing. yeah you should let the story flow and see where it goes and um, how the characters relate to one another and everything before you 
um, decide to too heavily where it sits. That's good advice because then then you can look back and, and revise if you. Yeah, decide. you can always revise later one direction or the other. Right. Uh, my right. young adult book, <laughs> I turned into my agent because it was on spec, so I just turned the first like hundred pages into my agent, and she thought because of the humor level that 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 it should be middle grade, and so she had me cut twenty thousand words and Ugh. tone out and tonal it to mid grade. Then we handed it into the editor, and the editor was like actually I think it should be YA so could you add 20,000 words and make it a little bit more complex and I simply turned around and handed in the previous draft <laughs> and the editor was like okay this is great Perfect. so <laughs> my agent was like right I'm just not going to bother <laughs> there you go so um, there's the lesson keep all of your yeah. drafts uh, yeah. you, you never know uh, but also like you know I've, I've never regretted that it was a great sort of exercise for me as an author to have to go in and cut 20% mm-hmm. so you know, like it, it was a nice challenge. It was kind of fun. I love, I love redlining myself. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I think it, the important part of that equation is simply just let yourself go as an author first. And then, um, you know, the market will tell you later if you decide to submit whether it's interesting. I mean, if your story and characters are solid enough, any editor will be like, well, this came across my desk as YA, but I think it ought to be mid grade. You know, author sure. picks that. Revision so, is always possible. So finish the story first absolutely. and then go there. Well, and, and, be to finish it. <laughs> sure, absolutely. And and I'm you know, I'm also one thing I noticed in in the character descriptions was I was more interested in Joseph than I was in Beckett and Alex. Uh, uh, Beckett had cool powers, and Alex kind of has this very conventional "I'm not sure who I am" sort of vibe. Joseph had distinction, and and he's he's you know the father of General Jacks. Uh, uh, the military leader in a town, which I think is very cool, a town whose sole job it is, is to defend the world against the two darkest evils in that world, the pit, the, the, the canyon, and whatever is is in the the forest, which we never really know what the, what that threat is. And that, that's okay. That can be ambiguous. Uh, uh, you know, maybe the focus for this particular story is the pit in the canyon. Um, so, uh, uh, you know, that culture that this story takes place in, a culture of defense, of defending the world, of, of duty and honor, and surely sacrifice. Because if this pit is to be truly a threat to the world, you're, there's going to be lives lost, there's going to be sacrifices made, uh, uh, and, and the people that live here, uh, they must live here by choice. Well, maybe not. I guess there, there could be there could be a, a, a indentured culture subculture which actually could be kind of interesting uh, well there has to be resource i mean if choice is involved then there must be resource reason right so there's the the it's the best farming is in, in that area or the most source for the edistone or something you know right sure sure well yeah and maybe that's the other thing is that between these two uh uh, uh threats to the world is the richest source of edistone uh which is why raj is here and what he's doing and so on and so forth Mm. Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's why that, that was definitely my idea, and that's why okay. Janus kind of wants it in the first place. He's like, you don't get it. Yeah, too many places. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't too many people have it. Well, time is ticking down. We're not we're not done yet, but but let me turn it to you, Rick. What uh, we we've thrown a bunch of stuff at you already, uh, uh, which which is inevitable during a roundtable brainstorm. Uh, is there any area in this in this last bit of brainstorm goodness that you'd like us to focus on? Anything that the conversation has has invoked in your in your imagination, but you're not quite sure how to pursue? 
I don't think so. I mean, I'm on board with almost all of this stuff. <laughs> awesome. Joseph is going to be a, a female pretty soon here. And <laughs> it'll Percy Jackson, never ending story. That sounds good to me too, if that's what it ends up being. So. Okay. Well, um, Gail, what about you? Is, is there something that we haven't touched on yet that you're going, we really need to smooth this out? I don't think so. I mean, I agree with Lauren that one of your primary concerns at the end is going to be agency. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and she's right. So, it's one of the hallmarks of something like, uh, and you can see this. So, if you know the Percy Jackson books and you know the Harry the Harry Potter books, um, the Harry Potter books essentially start out as sort of mid-grade and end up being um, YA. The Percy Jackson books, so far as I have read, tend to be mostly mid-grade. Yeah. But um, is that a hallmark of mid-grade is a hallmark of that age group, right? So in your uh, holes is another really good example. So when you're around like 10, 11, 12, the world is happening to you. Mm-hmm. Adults are telling you what to do, all of those sorts of things. So there is this sort of sensation of being swept along in events that are beyond your control and then trying to seize control of those events. In other words, trying to take your independence from your parents. Whereas with young adult, it's more this sort of high school um, feeling of uh, establishing your own identity as independent from your parents. So it's, it's slightly different, but that all ties into agency. So agency in YA is often things are happening to the characters, whereas agency, I mean, in mid-grade is things are happening to the characters in a, in a chaotic, out-of-control sensation, and, and your, your purpose of your characters is finding that control. Whereas in YA, agency is something that the characters develop for themselves. And so the, through the course of, of YA, and um, usually re- relatively early on, things stop happening to the character and the character makes things happen. Yeah. Um, and so as you're writing, you might find that one or the others is, is a way you're sinking. But if you, if you want powerful YA, the characters have to be the ones choosing their actions. And that's just, I mean, I guess that's just something to keep in mind as you write. Mm-hmm. Is like, Absolutely. Um, yeah. How much of this is, is them being swept up in sort of political machinations and how much is them saying, you know, like, I am now, like, I identify this problem, the, the tiger, and I am, I am now going to rescue that or, or I'm going to take these actions in order to release the tiger and that's my goal and I'm choosing to do that. Yeah. Um, so, in other words, if you're going to have a confrontation with Raj at the end, it either is this big political thing with the adults figuring out with each other or one of the kids is like, I'm taking that dude down. <laughs> and <laughs> the one is mid-grade and the other is YA. Very cool. That's wonderful. I, that's, that's a great awesome. description of those, of those two story types. That's incredibly helpful. Lauren, what about you? Is there, is there something that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get a chance to? Uh, I do want to know a little bit more specifically about the, the gods like whether they're all war gods or whether it's a pantheon type setup. Let's and- talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can see, you know, with, with Hallenport being set up in a position of defense, uh, uh, you know, protectors of the world, I can see like a, a, a an Athena or, or a defense god, a, a Horus uh, a type mm-hmm. of god or something along those lines. That's, that's my gut instinct. What do you guys think? It seems to me kind of like it would be a, a Sparta type situation where they they revere more heavily the war type gods, the defense type gods. If the society has anything 
beyond just those particular gods. It would be fun to have Raj if we're running with this idea of him um, collecting the Edda stones in a sort of these things are dangerous. We must we must keep them from which, which I think from we all people. like a lot. Yes, <laughs> it would be fun to Love also it. have him ostensibly be representing one of the pacifist gods. <laughs> so like a Hecate or a, like a mm-hmm. hearth god style yeah. in in a, like a protective deity. Um, and so whereas it, his intent. Engines again are this twist where he has this warlike reasoning for it nice. for himself. Uh, he could be in a way using this god to his own ends, which would also be like if you wanted to have um, real in- interactive deities, you could have the god interfere. You have a Deus Ex moment Ooh. where that god is like you. What? Like you used my name in vain, basically. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. And I'm not going to um, smite you, but I'm going to level the playing. Yeah, field. I'm a I'm a protective god, so I'm not going to like just like hurl shit at you, but I'm going to do this instead, right? <laughs> right. Uh, I don't know if you want your gods to be that active in this world. Well, but, I like that um, because you know one thing that's missing is you know if Halimport is protecting the world from these things, protecting who? We don't know anything about the the world that that Hallenport is protecting. Mm-hmm. So maybe there is a, a, a chief god of that world, which is would then be a nice hook into some world building into mm-hmm. the world out there. And it is right. a very pacifist, nurturing, hearth type god, and that's what Raj is is ostensibly pandering to, uh, uh, and that that aligns beautifully with what you were describing, Gail. I think that would be very cool. Yeah, and it's fun. I'm always interested in, I mean, you, you do get these incredibly warlike cultures like Sparta or, or even mm-hmm. Athens for all they pretended to be yeah. intellectuals. <laughs> um, but they always have, you, the, you, if you have a pantheon, you always have, you know, counterbalances to your war, war god. And there's always this level of understanding that an active war god has an element of foolishness there's there's yes. culture seem to understand that their own propensity to war is stupid is stupid yeah the, the the war gods are often dumb they're easily duped you know that sort of a thing um and there's and there's always other gods right there's always a, a, mm-hmm. a love there's always a, a, a you know a, a, pa- a defense a passivity a wisdom all of those sorts of things and that's so, a wonderful yeah. lens into the culture that reveres them mm-hmm. so having mm-hmm. those gods defined could be a very cool shorthand to understand the culture that the story is taking place in and to understand the specific characters, like each of the kids might have a god that they a patron, yeah, a yeah, patron, you can do a patron, same thing. Like, like if they wear they wear an idol of the god that you know appeals the most to them. Like for Beckett, and those could be it might Edistone be a, too. It, yes. yeah, 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 Edistone tiny idols. idols that could come to life, like Ushakis, <gasps> oh, little yeah. tiny fishes, like rawr, little vicious gods. You I have, love it. You have to fight me. <laughs> I will smite you. Oh, shut up. <laughs> But they're always kept really, really small, so they can't really do anything. Which is why the big ones are so scary. Make that happen. Yes. (laughs) That that would actually be a really good way to foreshadow what happens with the larger idols. Yes. Oh, hell yeah. Have those little idols. And um, like for Beckett, it would be something like like an Artemis type, somebody who, who... is very animal oriented and has that sort of animal mm-hmm. or farm. You can have a farm, a farming, uh, you know, agro pastoral. Yeah. Sure. yeah. And, um, and like, um, Joseph, Josepha, <laughs> <laughs> some kind of, so kind some kind of, um, or yeah. Or trickster. Yeah, like Academic or trickster. trickster, yeah. Yeah. trickster and, and when Alex gets pushed through the arch, his uh-huh. idol comes to life. 
So there's the foreshadowing and there's the but secret. But I don't like can't talk or anything. Exactly. It's just this teeny tiny thing that's like wildly gesticulating. <laughs> <laughs> like, that sounds like a like, guinea pig. Teeny tiny pinches. So just be like, no, no. You know, like, don't do that. Just pinches him or something. I love uh, it. Like a pin. I don't know. I think it's brilliant. <laughs> I think that's 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 got to happen. And you can add irony in that too, because gods are often two-faced or multifaceted. So, um, you know, Alex is who's being set up to be this quite timid character. His um, his his patron god could also be the the active war god or something, right? Oh. So his little patron god has a tiny little sword, and he's like, <laughs> poking him. And Alex is like, no, I don't want to do that. Ow! Ow! <laughs> It would be it would be kind of cute if like if it's something like the wands in Harry Potter where the wand chooses the wizard like they don't get to pick their idols. The little idols are just like they'll when they touch the right one it like comes to life and. that would actually be kind of a cool a cool opening scene is their choosing day you know and not them choosing their gods but the gods choosing them. Oh, so maybe it's like a maybe it's like a um a. A, an age ceremony because yeah, I know in, yeah, like in, in Japan they have a specific day where every child who's turned um, 20 in the past year um, up until that day uh, goes and they celebrate their 20th their coming of age on the same day there you go. so if it's something like that if it's like an idol choosing day and when they turn a certain age whether you want to skew it toward middle grade or YA mm-hmm. um, you have that age telegraphed at the very beginning nice the I other like that. Um, side to that is you can make it totally arbitrary so that um, <laughs> <laughs> it's like the day you're born, right? Like a like a like a classic Saints Day is like uh-huh. yeah, you're born this month, this day. Here's your little god. That's right. It's astrology yeah. or like, whatever. Astrology. Yeah. You you got the warrior god. What? <laughs> god damn it! I don't want the warrior god. <laughs> I hate the color pink or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! All right, all right, guys. I I, I need to I need to. <laughs> I don't want to, but but time is ticking down. So I I want to move us into <laughs> little gods, little gods. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> they might have got yeah, like okay. a little punch drunk and slightly like slightly too ridiculous and into the brownies and willow um, <laughs> here. So you might want to dial it dial down a little <laughs> bit. As a- the seed is a strong seed and how it blooms is up to you. Exactly. So uh, let, let me move us into our final stage of, of these brainstorms, which is is the, the, the final wrap up. We're going to go once more around the table uh, uh, and, and knowing Gail's propensity not to go first. Lauren will lead off with you and then to Gail and then to myself uh, uh, and, and just basically, you know, summarize what you feel is most important. Uh, uh, give, give Rick any last minute advice or suggestions in pursuing this book and, and just fill his pockets with literary gold. Uh, so Lauren will lead off with you. Final thoughts for Rick. All right. I definitely think that you can, really, uh, really separate out the two cultures that you have the culture. And I like the idea of it being a counterculture. I would definitely scrap the elf idea and go with that counterculture and, um, really define those along the lines of the religion to give your evil Rajnamali character, a, a sort of, a, an entire group that is showing what he pretends to be. And then, um, and defining your, your gods and your world and your magic is all going to be important, but the most important thing is to make sure all of your main characters have a hand in every major turning point in your story. 
That's right. Because you you always, when somebody talks about your story, you want them to lead with the character, not the concept. Right. (laughs) Very cool. Gail, what about you? Final thoughts for Rick? Um, I would say to give your, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. (laughs) Um, Professor (laughs) Carragher, very good. You can do this either as um, a speed writing assignment, be like, okay, I'm just like, Put, put yourself on the clock for 20 minutes or you can be like, okay, I'm just going to do a page or 500 words or whatever. Make it easy on yourself and a low barrier to entry so you don't like put it off. Okay. And I would say <laughs> write a piece that is only dialogue, no set tags, no nothing between your three characters, your mm. three kid characters. And you can um, pick a point that's within the story as you imagine it, or you could do when they first met each other, or you can do them talking about a homework assignment or talking about ha- just having come from a religious service. Just give yourself a simple, single day in the life for these three kids and then have them just talk to each other. And I think that will just give you insight into how they interrelate with each other, what their different voices are like, what they're just thinking about in every day. Because I, I'm such a character-driven reader and writer. I think it's it's always good to give yourself character because I think, yeah, everything comes easier if you know these three kids really, really well. So if you give yourself just one little assignment like that, yeah. I think it'll, it'll um, give you some important insight into them. Very much so. Very much so. I, I, I saw a post recently that, that talked about how, you know, the why of something is is what informs the power and magnitude of the what that you do. So, you know, action is awesome, but knowing why you're taking the action informs that action much more profoundly. So, yes. And awesome. I think and I think you have really good insight into the motives for these kids, but I want you to know how they talk to each other as well. I just think yeah. that that's a really good skill to have before you start out on a, or really delve into a story. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good advice. Good advice. And, and for myself, uh, Rick, I'm, I'm going to offer the word integration uh, uh, and, and offer it as a blanket term in the context of how you tie this story together. Uh, uh, as it was presented, the elves were separate and, and the hell place is separate and the, the, place that Hellport is is uh, defending is separate. We, we don't really, it doesn't figure in to the story that you're telling. And likewise, uh, the kids uh, are, are you know, largely at this point reactionary and, and shifting them towards a more active focus and have things in the world, the, the, the creatures in the forest, the, the hell place, the, the culture that they're growing up in. Whatever aspects of that need to be brought to the forefront are relevant in some way to the protagonist's story. If if we're dealing with uh, uh, the struggle of uh, the mandates of the mother country to the po- politics of uh, Helenport, then we also are dealing with, and that's that'll be revelationary to the dealings of the kids to their parents or to their superiors or whatever. Making sure that everything reflects back on the story and most importantly, as has been pointed out, the characters in that story, these three POV characters, and making sure that everything is in service to their story will cohese cohese that's a word 
I'm making a word. Uh, <laughs> coagulate. <laughs> coagulate, yes. Congeal. That's gross. Uh, it'll, do, it'll bring everything together and, and tighten the threads of the story and make everything driving forward to that resolution that you're striving for at the end. So that- and I, I, I would add to that, don't be afraid to, like, we've, we've thrown a lot of stuff at you. Don't be afraid to delete a concept or just be like, that is not relevant to this story. It can go <laughs> to another book. It's okay. Absolutely. To pare down. Yeah. Because, because as you observed, YA and mid-grade tend to be shorter stories, and you don't have a lot of time and space for those, for those explorations. So, and one cool. of the fun things for readers is finding out more about the world as the series progresses. So. Yeah. Yes. And, and then there's collateral stories and side short stories that you <laughs> self-publish because you're awesome that way. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Very cool. All right. So, so Rick, here's the deal, man. Uh, uh, and this is the standing offer here at the Roundtable. You write this bad boy. Uh, you make this thing happen. And you put it out in the world, whether it's a PDF on your website or or some you know six figure deal with a traditional publisher. Anything in between doesn't matter. Get it out there so it's infecting people's minds and and seeding them with your visions and your imagination. And you let us know, and then we'll have you back, and we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the round table podcast. You down with that, man? That is that is going to happen. Very cool. <laughs> Very cool. Hey, NaNoWriMo is right around the corner. I know. So. Set, man. Perfect you are and, you know, and you know what 50,000 words is? That's a mid-grade novel. Holy crap. Ooh. There you go. 30 days, write the first draft. First draft, just tell yourself the story. You don't have, it doesn't have to be brilliant, a staggering work of, of genius. Just tell yourself the story and put that 50,000 words. That's awesome. Hey, I know uh, a great Facebook page you can join. <laughs> Indeed. The Rotano Rimos in Indeed, we are fabulous that way. Uh, so very cool. So Rick, dude, thank you so much. I know it wasn't easy, and and you 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 brought some great stuff to the table. Obviously, this discussion is proof of that. So thank you, sir, very much. Oh, thank you guys. So this is, I mean, it's not gold for anybody else. It has been for me. This is oh, great. This is that's the beauty wonderful. of the roundtable, man. It is gold for everybody else because all the <laughs> stuff that was going on during that last 45 minutes or so, literary gold, fabulous. And that is due largely uh, to the presence of our fabulous guest host, Gail Carriger. You are the reason why we bring veteran authors on to the roundtable to bring us that fabulosity, your experience, your insights. And, and I am justified in that choice once again in Aww. this particular one. Thank you so much, ma'am. Oh, thank you so much for thinking of me and having me back on. And I can't wait till we do it again. I see. I love when people say that. That's so going to happen. Absolutely. Absolutely. And my co-host, my wing angel, Lauren Scribe Harris. Thank you, ma'am. As always, it's a delight having you by my side and brainstorming with you, ma'am. Well, I love coming on, so you know me. I'm always up to come back to the round table. Ah, uh, yes, the round table roster. It expands gloriously. Fabulous. And and yes, definitely, Lauren, Ooh. we'll make that happen. Round table regular. Ooh, yes. Yes, bam. We have to have badges and t-shirts making mm-hmm. that happen. Making that happen. And nice. as long as we're doling out the gratitude, dear friends, thank you for tuning in. Uh, without you hitting that play button, we're just four people on a Skype line, which is fabulous. We, we have fun, uh, but this way you get to sample that 
literary gold as well. And hopefully it helped you clarify something in your current work in progress or open some new doors. If you're feeling the love, share the love, share it out there in the world, spread it, spread the word, blog about us, uh, share a Facebook post or two. That's always awesome. Uh, let more people know about the fabulosity going on here because there's plenty of room for more people. We got seats in the back, uh, seats in the left wing, seats in the right. We can fill those up. It's the potosphere. It's huge. So, <laughs> oh God, I am so lighting up the celebratory cigarette because I am spent. This was awesome. <laughs> and and the fabulous thing is, is that as spent and, and, and sweaty as we all are, in seven days, it starts all over again. Like a phoenix from the ashes, we shall rise <laughs> up with another fabulous guest host pouring wisdom in our ears, another courageous guest writer setting the feast for our brainstorm, more roundtable fabulosity to be had by all. But I know it's seven days, and I'm sorry, we just can't do it any quicker. So, Lauren, give, help us out. What what can, what can our listeners do for seven days that will make that time just fly by? I honestly think they should be writing, Dave. I think that's, I think that's a, the only thing that makes sense. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Or at least outlining in preparation for NaNoWriMo. Uh, yes. Uh, but definitely, definitely writing. I think that's always sound advice. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top shelf blue label goodness. Look for that package at the back of the Christmas tree that she, when you thought you'd opened all the packages and holy crap, there's one more. Look for that fabulosity in the world. And I promise you, dear friends, if you look for it, you will find it. We will be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, stay frothy, and stay awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter, at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.